Well, go ahead and open up your Bibles to uh, 1 Samuel chapter 21. We're going to jump off here this morning and do a little bit of a, of a new series, something that, I, that I've been thinking about for a while and have been very eager to dive into with all of you, something that I think will be helpful to you because it has been helpful to me uh, as we kind of take a ramble through the life of David and learn some lessons from the things that he has to teach us. I think it's going to be very helpful for us to look at these things together over a period of a certain number of weeks and uh, learn some things from his life that hopefully will be very applicable to our own. You know, life really is, in many ways, a series of highs and lows, right? It's this undulating series of peaks and valleys that weave through our, the path of our life, weaves through those peaks and then back down into those valleys. And oftentimes we find that, that the emotions that we feel as human beings going through both the highs and those lows skip across the mountain ranges. And it's, it's easy for us when times are good to look at where we are and to feel the joy that comes with that and to look forward to the next mountaintop experience that we will have in our life as a series of events produces good things in our lives. And we look forward to that, to that next high point. And so oftentimes we forget that between this high point and that high point, more than likely there will be a, a low point. And we, we forget about that oftentimes as we think about our lives. And, and sometimes when, when we look ahead in our mind's eye, we, we see ourselves jumping from peak to peak to peak. And as we, as we look to the future, I think all of us would say that we, we do so with a certain attitude of hopefulness, right? We all look to what the Lord has in our future, and we all have our hopes, we have our dreams, we see hope for ourselves, and we see hopefulness for those that we love. I mean, no one looks into their future and envisions the loss of a child. No one looks into their future and plans on getting cancer. No one hopes that their kid will know chronic difficulty. No one looks into their future and plans on the rebellion of a child's youthful heart. You know, we as human beings naturally and almost universally project onto our future history visions of success and of stability. And yet, those hopes are often very wrong. They're aimed wrongly. Because you see, as we're hoping for a better life, as we're hoping for success, as we're hoping for a life of ease and peace and prosperity, we work and we strive with the expectations that hopefully that work will pay off and my goals will be achieved. And yet, that is just not the way life goes. Because mountains are almost always followed by valleys. And it's in those valleys that we discover that in reality, we've been looking at the wrong things for our hope, for the source of our hope, all along. And so the question that's before us as we kind of jump into this series is this. How are we, as people who love our Lord and desire to honor him and fear him and walk uprightly, how are we to live in the valleys of life? How are we to navigate the low points of life without being consumed by them? And, and more importantly, how do we see the Father when our lives are consumed by difficulty? How do we see him? And what should we be thinking about him when we enter into those low points? And I think that is the, core, the point of correlation where it's so helpful for us to turn back into the pages of Scripture and take a look at the life of David. 
Because David's life, you see, he, he really became a man on a mission to show us how to survive the low points in life. So oftentimes when we think of him, we think of a man who lived amongst the mountaintops, right? We, we look at his life and we think of him as being the giant slayer. We think of him as being the forerunner of the Messiah. We think of him as being what God said of him, as being a man after God's own heart. And we look at his life and we think, wow, what a successful guy. And yet we skip over the many, many chapters of material that show us David as he navigated through some extremely low points. In fact, as I counted it up, there are 63 chapters in Scripture that are devoted to telling the story of David, and almost all of them are focused on his navigation of trials, his navigation of of life in a fallen world. It's not focused upon his triumphs. It's focused upon the difficulties that he faced. And so I think... That when we look at David, we find a man who has something to teach us about how to live in the midst of hardship. A man who is qualified to say in every way, as he says in Psalm 23, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I know you are with me. And as we look at his life, we'll find lessons on how to live when you find yourself lost in the shadows that are cast by walking through that valley. And so what I want us to do over a period of weeks is to really just take a chronological walk through the low points in David's life and and see what he has to say and and really to see, more importantly, the truth about God that he brings to bear upon those points of difficulty that he experienced in his life. There were many points of difficulty in his life, and I think that in looking at his life, we'll find the ability to learn how do we handle the disappointment of finding our expectations being unfulfilled? How do we walk through valleys like mourning the loss of a close friend? How do we deal with the grief of having a rebellious child? How, how do we rightly take responsibility for recognizing that our leadership has utterly failed? How do we deal with things like the fear that invariably comes from standing at the threshold of death's doorstep? These are all low points in David's life, and there's many, many more that we will be digging into. But I think that just as I go through that very short list, you can see the very practical implications of learning from this man's life as he brings the truth of God to bear upon those low points in his life. Because let's face it, we all have low points in our life. And despite the fact that we may hope for success, we may hope for good times to come. The reality is that as you look to the future of your life, you need to be prepared for everything to not go well, because everything doesn't always go well. And so I think it's important for us to look at his low points and to learn the lessons that we can from them in preparation for our own low points. And what I want us to do is to start by looking at, because this is the first low point really in David's life, it's here in chapter 21 of 1 Samuel, I want us to look at how to handle the disappointment of seeing your expectations going unfulfilled. This is certainly something that David understood a lot about. And as we parachute into 1 Samuel 21, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to back up just a little bit, get a sense of the context, because it's critical to understanding what's going on here in David's brain in 1 Samuel 21. And I think then we'll be able to rightly turn to some Psalms that he wrote in light of these experiences and draw some lessons that we'll, we'll be able to apply to ourselves. But the story that we find here in 1 Samuel 21 
it's a particular moment of painful disappointment in his life because for the first time, it becomes clear to David that his expectations for what he thought was going to be true about his life were not going to be true about his life. Or at least they wouldn't be true in the way that he thought they were going to come true because everything in 1 Samuel 21 goes from being really good to being really, really bad. So let's get a a sense of the scope. I'm going to back up and just walk us through, uh, starting in 1 Samuel chapter 16. You can keep your finger there in verse, or chapter 21. I'm sorry, and I'm going to back up a few chapters. But in 1 Samuel chapter 16, we really find a person of David being introduced to us, and it's kind of a funny way that he's introduced. Samuel is led by the Lord to go out to the family of Jesse to anoint a new king, and he goes through every single son of Jesse, and he hears the Lord's voice saying to him, nope, not him, nope, not him, and on and on down the list, Samuel goes through all of Jesse's sons until he gets to the end, and he's looking around saying, God, you brought me into this house, but there's no more sons here. And he says to Jesse, Jesse, do you have any more sons? And Jesse says, eh, not really. And Samuel says, are you sure? And he says, well, I guess there is one more. It's the youngest out in the field, but you don't really want to see him. And Samuel says, yeah, actually I do. So out someone goes to get David. David comes back into the house of Jesse and the Lord says to Samuel, this is the one. Now, as Samuel's brothers recount to David what had just happened in that house after the fact, how do you think that made David feel? I mean, like, wow, talk about being understated, right? So David is introduced to us in this very diminutive way where where he's really overlooked from the get-go, but God says, that is my man. That is the man who, who loves me, who, who follows after me. He is a man after my own heart. And that, that is my man. Despite the appearance of what his life might look like now, I will make him into something. And so the flask is brought out. The oil is poured over David's head. And he, for the first time in his life, sees himself as being something other than the youngest runt of the pack. Right? He begins to see himself as the future king of Israel. I mean, talk about a mind bender. Like this was something that he did not expect. And he, I'm sure as he went back out to the field after that, his brother said, get back out there. You know, you're not king yet. Go take care of the sheep. He goes back out into the fields and he's wondering how in the world is this going to happen? Like, how is God going to take me out of this field and put me on that throne? Because I don't know if you've noticed, there's already a king on the throne. And I don't think he's going to take too kindly to being knocked off. Well, God starts doing things. Chapter 17. And you all know the story where David is sent with some meat and some cheese to take it out to his brothers as they're stuck, stymied before the Philistines. They go to war. Israel goes to war with the Philistines. And the Philistines bring out their champion, the champion Goliath. And David isn't even really old enough or thought of enough to really be sent out to war, but he ends up on the battlefield anyway because he needs to restock his brother's uh, food pouches. He ends up on that battlefield, and as you all know, he ends up the hero of that story. And before chapter 17 is over, you find that David is not just a little shepherd boy anymore. No, he is a national hero. He is a warrior. 
He is a hero to all the people and they begin to sing songs about him. And David's stature in the land begins to rise dramatically. Things begin to look up for him. He, he goes into the court of King Saul and he sits next to the king and, and he kills this giant. He becomes a hero. He's now a celebrity. Everyone's talking about him, singing about him. You get into chapter 18, things keep looking up for him. He ends up marrying Saul's daughter. He becomes part of the king's family. Everything is going his way, you see. And things are really looking good. He, he, can, he can really do no wrong. God's plan is coming to pass in his life. And, and sure, he's having to work for it along the way. I'm sure it wasn't easy to stand there facing down this giant. I'm sure it wasn't easy to deal with the palace intrigues that we read about in chapters 18 and 19. This wasn't easy, but the point is that the pathway is clear. David went from being in the field to being in the court. He went from being in Jesse's family and thought nothing of to being in Saul's family, and everyone thinks something of him. And he can see the trajectory from where he was to where God promised he was going to be. The expectations were very clearly set for him. And yet, in 1 Samuel chapter 19, we start to find out that things aren't going so well. They begin to come off the rails in 1 Samuel 19 because Saul begins to become jealous. And David, who had become best friends with Saul's son Jonathan... Jonathan warns him and says, David, you need to get out of here in chapters 19 and 20 because my father is going to kill you and God may have anointed you king, but it's not going to do you much good if you are dead. And he has to run for his life in chapter 20 for the first time. And he finds himself on the road and Saul is very angry with Jonathan saying, how could you have done this to me? How could you have betrayed me like this to my bitter rival? David's done nothing wrong. He's done nothing but pursue what he thought was the will of God for his life. And yet he finds himself on the run at the end of chapter 20. That brings us down to chapter 21. And it's in this chapter, as we will read, that David begins to realize that he has nowhere to go and he has nothing. He is, in this chapter, hungry. He is homeless. He is helpless. He becomes a desperate man and he begins to do desperate things because he doesn't know what else to do. Let me, let me read the narrative directly from the text for us and we'll make some comments as we go so you get a sense of what's going on in his heart and life. Then David came to Nob. This is verse 1 of chapter 21. Then David came to Nob. I love the name of that place, Nob. To Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came, came trembling to meet David. Why is he trembling? Because he knows that things are not okay between Saul and David, and it's not safe for him to be seen talking to David. Himlech comes trembling to meet him and says, Why are you alone? And why is no one with you? It's a very suspicious question because David's behavior is very suspicious. And Himlech knows something is up. David says to Himlech the priest, Well, the king has commissioned me with a matter. And it said to me, let no one know anything about the matter on which I am sending you and with which I have commissioned you. And I have directed the young men to a certain place. David essentially covers his tracks by telling a lie. He trusts in himself and he says, I don't know how God's going to deliver me. But in this particular situation, I need food. I need a weapon. I need help. I need cover. I need shelter. I need protection. I need something. And this is the guy who's got to do it. I'm going to say whatever it takes to make sure that I get out of this situation. 
And he makes up a story and talks about the fact that, yes, I have traveling companions, but I've directed them to go to a different place and wait for me. It's just me here talking to you today. Now, therefore, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever can be found. The priest answers David and says, There is no ordinary bread on hand, but only the consecrated bread. But I can't give it to you if there's impurity in the midst. He says, if only the young men have kept themselves from women, right? He, David has successfully deceived him into thinking that he has traveling companions. And David saying, well, uh-oh, um, I made up a story to start with. And, and now I'm going to have to keep making up stories. In verse 5, he continues to trust in himself. David answers the priest and says to him, well, of course, surely women have been kept from us as previously when I set out and the vessels of the young men were holy. Though it was an ordinary journey, how much more than today will their bodies and vessels be holy? He continues on in his lie. He continues to make up his story. So the priest gave him consecrated bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which was removed before the Lord in order to put hot bread in its place when it was taken away. The priest says, I've got some leftovers here. It's bread consecrated to God, but I, I guess you can have it if you're on a mission from the king, and I guess that makes it a mission from God. This is God's bread, and you've been pure, therefore you can have it, not knowing that David is being impure with his lips right there before him. Now, here's the catch. Verse 7, one of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord, and his name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's shepherds. There's a spy there watching this whole thing go down. And David said to Ahimelech, well, he's thinking to himself, I'm on a roll. May as well get all I can here. Now, is there not a spear or maybe a sword on hand? For I brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, <coughs> coughs, because the king's matter was urgent. <coughs> and the priest said, the sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, behold, it is wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. Now, there's a very interesting detail. Because the thing that David should have been doing was going there to talk to God's man to get direction from the Lord. And in that day, the way you got direction from the Lord was by was through this garment called the ephod, whereby God would make his will for you known if you came before him correctly. And yet David goes plunging right past the ephod, God's symbol of direction, pushes it aside and goes right for the thing before it, the sword that had delivered him once before, that he had picked this up and used it to chop off Goliath's head. He pushes aside the counsel of God and goes on for the thing he knows that he himself can use to protect himself. He said it's wrapped in a cloth behind that ephod. And if you want to take it for yourself, go ahead. For there is no other except it here. And David said, yeah, you're right. There is none like it. Go ahead and give it to me. Right? And David knew that because back earlier in 1 Samuel chapter 17, we find that it was a very impressive sword, a sword of great renown. It was a sword that was made of totally all out of bronze. Bronze was very expensive. All of Goliath's armor was made out of bronze. And this is a, a notable sword that everyone would have recognized as being Goliath's sword. He says, give it to me. Then David arose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. You know, you've heard the saying that desperate times call for desperate measures, but this one is a doozy, Right? I mean, David is the guy who is known as being the giant killer. He is the one who slew the hero of Gath, Goliath. So what does he do when he's desperate? He picks up Goliath's sword, a recognizable piece of instrument, and he takes it back to Goliath's hometown. 
because he's got no other place to go. I mean, this is an act of sheer desperation because he has nowhere to go. And so, again, instead of turning to God, he turns to the only place he knows to turn, which is the only other city anywhere nearby, the city of his arch rivals and enemies. And he drags Goliath's sword there along with him. And this is an incredibly bold, bordering on insane plan. And this is exactly what the king of Gath concludes about him. Verse 10, then David arose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. But the servants of Achish said to him, after seeing the sword stuck in his belt, wait a minute, is this not David, the king of the land? They knew that he had been appointed by Samuel. They recognize him right off the bat. Did they not sing of this one as they danced, saying, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands? Namely, number one of those sent ten thousands, our hero. And David David took these words to heart and greatly feared Achish, king of Gath. And so he disguised his sanity before them. He realizes that he is in a terrible predicament, and he acts insanely in their hands. He begins to scribble on the doors of the gate, and he lets his saliva, his spit, run down into his beard, acting as though he's lost his mind. And Achish buys it because who else but a madman would bring Goliath's sword back into Goliath's hometown and pretend to be looking for sanctuary. This is the last place that David should be. Achish says to his servants, what are you doing? Behold, you see that this man is behaving as a madman. Why are you bringing him to me? I've already got enough of these kinds of people around here. Do I lack madmen that you have brought this one to act the madman in my presence? Shall this one come into my house? No, I don't think so. Get him out of here. So David departed from there and escaped out into the wilderness. Now, as we pick up this story, it's a very bizarre story. You're saying, what is going on in this text? What's going on? Where I want us to stop and pause and really spend the rest of our time is on the road out of Gath. As David leaves Gath, as he walks away from Achish, everything having come unglued, what do you think he's thinking? As he's wiping the spit out of his beard, he's got no place to go. He can't go home. He can't stay here. There's no place for him. I mean, here's a man who was supposed to be the king and now... Far from that, far from life in a palace with a retinue of servants, he has no place to go, he has no friends, and he has nothing more than a loaf of bread in his backpack and a sword in his belt. Evil men had derailed David's plans. And he begins to realize that life has taken a a different providential direction than he thought it was going to. And sometimes trials, they do come, that cause us to wonder if God has forgotten about the plan that, hey, did you notice? We all agreed on this. I was going to be the king. And yet here he is on this road, completely alone, defenseless, hungry, helpless, homeless. What's going on? Let's let's stop there just a second. Because the temptation would have been very strong, I believe, in David's mind to be thinking all of these things. God, where are you and have you forgotten what we agreed upon? His expectations had been set and life did not match up with those expectations. And we know that he struggled with these feelings because he records them for us in Psalm 56, particularly verses 3 and 4. He says, "Uh, when I am afraid, I will trust in you. In God whose word I praise, in God I have put my trust, I shall not be afraid. Now, there he is working through and he is actively putting his trust in the Lord, but he talks about being afraid three different times. I mean, he's really having to work through his feelings. 
We know that he struggled with God's provision because he deceives the priests and doesn't inquire of the Lord. And instead of using the ephod to seek the Lord's guidance, he trusts his own instincts. Don't inquire of God. Take the bread, take the sword, and let's figure this out on our own. But eventually, he comes around. David could have said, you promised. Have you forgotten? I'm entitled to a kingdom. And all you've given me is this lousy piece of bread and this, and this big oversized sword. Where's my palace? Where's my army? God has been unfaithful. But that is not what David says. He says something very different. You see, there is a dramatic realignment that takes place in his perspective. A realignment of his heart, of his perception of himself, and his understanding about the truth of God's sovereignty. And we find the record of that realignment taking place over in Psalm 34. I want us to turn there together now and take a look at Psalm 34. Because Psalm 34, in the inscription on this psalm, we're told that David writes it when he feigned madness before Ahimelech, who drove him away and he departed. This is the song that David writes when he's on the road away from Gath, trying to reckon with what has happened. My expectations have certainly not been fulfilled. What he thinks is this, and I think it's instructive to us. He essentially says to himself, I'm entitled to nothing, and everything I have is a gift, and I know that God is sovereign, and I will trust him. And those are important truths for us to realize when our expectations go unmet. You know, if, if you find when your expectations about life aren't met, that your heart is in despair, that you are despondent and discouraged when life does not go your way, here's what it means about you. It means that your heart is oriented towards the wrong hopes. It means that you have the wrong objective and the wrong perspective. Because people who know the Lord, people who fear the Lord, when life doesn't go their way, they don't blame God and go back to the trinkets and say, where's my stuff? Where's the things you promised me? Instead, they go back to God's nature and they say, you are sovereign and I can trust you. You see, sovereignty is the antidote to disappointment about life. David, in Psalm 34, he doesn't blame God. He trusts God. He feels the sword in his belt and he remembers God's victory over Goliath. He chews on that bread from the tabernacle that he got through dishonest means and he knows that despite his efforts that were so wicked, that that bread came from God to sustain him. It was literally God's bread. With the sword in his belt, the bread in his bag, and the promises of God on his head, he marches out of Gath in Psalm 34. And here in this psalm, he records for us his recognition of God's gifts. He realizes that he actually has all that he needs because he's entitled to nothing. And everything that he had on his person was a gift from God. He has nothing but the clothes on his back, but those clothes on his back are clothes given to him by God. And he needs nothing else. In Psalm 34, he turns his attention to the sovereignty of God and it represents a radical realignment of his expectations. Because as I've said, the antidote to disappointment in life is not to point back to those things that you expected. Instead, you must cling to the sovereignty of God. Because when life doesn't work out, Psalm 34 instructs us then says that God, even though you think it's a mess, God is still faithful. 
when life falls apart, God is still sovereign. And when I don't know where to turn and what to do now, God is still there and he is unchanging and he is moving. And where you came from, the high point to this very low point, nothing about the nature of God has changed. And that's what David tells us in Psalm 34. Look with me, and I know it's kind of strange to start in the middle, but we're going to start in verse 11. Because Psalm 34 is arranged with a poetic device called a chiasm, right? It means that everything from the front matches up with that at the back, and it kind of moves in sequential steps down to the very center. And the center of this psalm is found in verse 11. And this is the point David wants us to understand. And then we'll unpack the rest of the psalm from here. In verse 11, he says, Come, you children, listen to me. Because I am going to teach you now about the fear of the Lord. He is worthy of our trust. And as I'm walking down this road with no clue how life's going to work out, he is worthy of my worship and my fear and my reverence. That's the point of this psalm. He turns back to the sovereignty of God. The antidote to disappointment is to fear God. It's to stand in awe of his person, his plan. Forget your own plans because God is sovereign. His plan is eternal. You are temporal. Your plans are like sand in your fingers. So don't cling to your own hopes and your own dreams. But instead, the message of David is this. Root yourself in the majesty of God's unchanging truth and fear him. He says in Psalm 34, I know how to do it. And I'll teach you too. Because when you do this, there can be no disappointment. When you reorient your own mind and you align it with his mind, there can be no letting down in life. You'll never say again, I feel so let down that what I wanted to happen didn't happen. That's David's whole point here in this psalm. So let's just go through it here together. In verses one through three, we find the very foundation of David's entire worldview. And when we're tempted to be disappointed, I think we need to go back to the foundation of our worldview as well. Here's David's foundation. He says, this is what I've always believed, and it's what I believe today. He says, I will bless the Lord at all times, and his praise shall always be in my mouth. My soul will make its boast in the Lord, and the humble will hear it and rejoice. Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. You see, David's actions here, they go back to the the very baseline of everything that he believed. he, He turns back to his days out in the fields before all the crazy started. And what are the actions that he takes? He blesses the Lord. He boasts in the Lord. He magnifies the Lord in verses 1, 2, and 3. And then he goes on and he extends an invitation to us. And he says, come on, do this with me. And our question there at the end of verse 3 could be this. But David, look around. Look around yourself, man. You're in a mess. You got nothing but Goliath's sword and a ticket out of town. You're in a mess. (laughs) And so am I. Because my expectations weren't fulfilled with what's happened in my life this week either, David. So why should I? Well, David answers that question for us in verses 4 through 7. He tells us a little bit more about his situation And everything in verses 4 through 7, David is saying, My life is in bad news, but God, God is there. Verse 4, he talks about his fear. Verse 5, he talks about his shame. Verse 6, he talks about being found in poverty and having all these troubles. 
You see, the depth of David's peril didn't escape him. There's clear shame in his mind when he thinks about the disfigurement of his crazy face before Achish. Look at verse 5. He says, when you look to the Lord, your face is never going to be ashamed again. He's remembering in his mind the shame that came with having to act like a crazy man, his spit running down into his beard. He reveals that, that he's a poor man. He doesn't say any poor man. Verse 6, he says, this poor man cried out. He's recognizing that he's got nothing. His situation is bad news. He's under no delusions of anything other than that. But all David could do was to seek the Lord, to look to him and to cry out. And what I love about verses four through seven is David is reflecting upon his situation is the response that God has to every one of David's actions. Because as David looks to the Lord, as David cries out to the Lord, as David seeks the Lord, God responds to each of David's actions with proof of his sovereignty. There's really six proofs of his sovereignty here that David cries out three times and God responds six times, right? It's double David's actions. God takes two actions for every one that David takes. God answers him. He delivers him. God removes his shame. He hears his voice. He saves him and he rescues him. David is saying, I called out to God because I'm in the midst of difficulty and boy, did God answer. The angel of the Lord, you see, verse 7, encamps around all those who fear God, and he rescues him. David says, my situation was bad, but God is bigger than that, and therefore, I'm going to fear him, and I'm going to trust him. And in verses 8 through 14, we get down to the heart of this psalm, where David deploys his solution. His solution is found right there in the center, as I said in verse 11, fear God. Stand in awe of his person. Know him and be known by him. Love him and be loved by him. Walk with him in a reverential relationship. And there's this very powerful connection in these verses to the problem that David was facing because, again, the antidote to his disillusionment was remembering the sovereignty of God. This week I was reading in the book Knowing God by J.I. Packer, it's an old classic, and I was struck by something that he said in that book. He said, you know, people who really know God, they never brood or dwell on those things that might have been. They never look back at the things that they have missed. They only reflect upon that which they have gained. Because when we spend our time pining away for worthless things, it actually reveals the poverty that exists in our understanding of God. And that's really the heartbeat of David's message here to us. He's saying, instead of looking at all the expectations that have gone unfulfilled, instead of looking back to all of that stuff, look at God instead. Because when you see him clearly for who he is, you will begin to realize that you have gained so much infinitely more than anything that you think you might have lost. I may have lost my kingdom. I may have lost my home. I may have lost my friends. And yet it does not matter. Why? Verse 8. Because God is good. Taste and see, verse 8, that the Lord is good. David teaches us here. He says, the first thing you need to do when you're disappointed and things didn't go your way, fear God. How do you do that? Taste and see that he is good. Taste his goodness. Look at the faith that he has here. 
David's got nothing but the clothes on his back. And yet he said, it doesn't matter if I don't have a castle because I'm taking refuge in my God and I know he is faithful. Taste his goodness, verse 8. Verse 9, he says, trust his provision and you, you won't have any want. Fear the Lord, you his saints, for to those who fear him, there is no want. You see, God doesn't just protect, he provides. He goes on in verse 10, he says, the young lions, they do lack and they do get hungry. I mean, lions, they're the beasts that are most capable of providing for themselves. David's learning a lesson here. He's saying, you know, when you lean on your own understanding, you will get hungry. And he knew because that's exactly what he did back with the priest in Nob. He said, I, I tried to do it my way. And I ended up having to act like a crazy person in front of Achish. You'll get lost if you lean on yourself. I mean, just look at the lions. They get hungry. But, verse 10. They who seek the Lord shall not be in any want of any good things. When you trust him, you won't have want. Why? Because he is good. James 1.19, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. He says, fear God. Fear him by tasting his goodness. Fear him by relying upon his provision. He goes on in verse 12. And he says, in addition to those things, speak the truth. Instead of focusing on who you were and who you wish to be, focus on who God is and who he wants you to be. So, so keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Do speak that which is true. He goes on verse 13. I know we're going fast through this, but I just want you to get a, a sweep of the psalm that David writes in answer to his own problem. He says, speak truth. He says, do right, verse 14, depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Because if you fear God, it means you see him. When you see him, you love him. When you love him, you obey him. And that's why you depart from evil. It's why you do good. It's because you love your God. It's because you fear your God. You do what God says is actually important. Why? Because you desire all of a sudden his priorities more than your own priorities. David is saying here, what I'm trying to teach you is this. If you're basking in the goodness of God, if you're walking in fear of him, if you're speaking the truth and seeking to do right, if everything you are is focused on who he wants you to be, then there's no space left for you to go back to your own paltry wants and complain that I don't have that thing I wanted. Why haven't you given me that trinket? Are you kidding you have a good God. You have no want. You have a refuge. We have a good God. And therefore, there's no space left in my heart for going back to the things that I thought I wanted but don't have. Because I have him. And that's all that matters. This was David's confidence. Verses 15 through 18. We find that as he has this perspective in his heart, Look at how he responds. And, and this section, really, verses 15 through 18, is matched up with verses 4 through 7. David's situation was bad, but look at what God is doing here in verses 15 through 18. David says, look, I fear him. And the result is that the eyes of the Lord's are toward the righteous. His ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against the evildoers to cut off the memory of them from the earth. The righteous cry, and the Lord hears, and he delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted, and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. 
You see, undergirded by David's knowledge of God's sovereign presence, he, un- he sees the pervading influence and presence of God in every corner of his life. He takes tremendous comfort in knowing that though life might not be going according to his plan, God still sees, God still hears, God still knows, and God is still near. I mean, just look at the descriptions that are here in verses 15 through 18. You see the eyes of God, the ears of God, the face of God, the awareness of God as he hears the cry and delivers. You see the proximity to God. And I love verse 18 because it so captures David's heart. He says, the Lord is near to those who are brokenhearted to those who don't trust in themselves and insist upon their own way. The Lord is near to them. And the Lord saves those whose spirits have been crushed. The people who get all of these benefits of God being so close are the righteous, the brokenhearted, the crushed. And I think that's so important for us to recognize. Because in order to overcome the disappointment and the despair of feeling like you are stuck in a hopeless spot, and your hopes are never going to come true. David is saying, they might not. And that's actually okay. You need to let them go. You need to be brokenhearted. You need to be crushed before him. Because when you are crushed and broken, and you're looking at the tattered shreds of your life and your hopes in your hands, that is when you're ready to turn and fling your plans to the ground and cling to that which God actually has for you. Nothing less than himself and his goodness. So you may not see the way. You might not even understand his plan. But you'd better trust that in his good providence, he knows. Because he is near. His eyes see you. His ears are open to you. His face is set and he is near. David matches his situation with this glorious confidence that God's got this and I can let go. So what's his expectation then? Verses 19 through 21, we find David's renewed expectation and it matches up perfectly with the foundation of everything that he knew that he said in verses one through three. He says, I'm going to bless the Lord. I'm going to boast in him and I'm going to magnify his name. Why? Because it doesn't matter the situation that I'm in. Verse 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but God delivers him out of them all. He keeps all of his bones and not one of them is broken. Evil shall slay the wicked and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. David is saying here, look, verse 19, I know more trouble is going to come. We're not done with the problems because many are the afflictions of the righteous. But guess what? Just like God is here today, he's always going to be there. And he will keep you safe through all of life's valleys. And yes, you will get bruised. Yes, you will have trouble. But in the end, you will stand before him. You may even be bloodied, but you will not be broken. Look what he says. Not one of his bones is broken. Verse 20. Those who love evil, their bones will get broken because God will win. Those who cling to their own expectations, they will lose. But who wins? The one who wins is the one who fears the Lord. And therefore, David's able to say, I'm still going to praise God. In the midst of the trouble that I'm finding myself in, I will bless his name. I will boast in him. I will magnify his name. At the end of the day, 
knowing that he is sovereign. That's the answer to my disappointments. Go back with me to Saul or to 1 Samuel chapter 22. We've seen the heart of Samuel. Keep a finger in Psalm 34 because we're going to come back there right here at the end. We've seen his heart on display. But that does not mean that everything goes well because there were consequences to his initial lack of trust. Look at what happens in chapter 22. The first part of that chapter, Saul finds out that David had been at Nob. He's standing under the tamarisk tree in his capital. And he finds out from Doeg the spy, verse 9, he says, look, I saw David go to Nod to the priest. Verse 10, Doeg says, and he inquired of the Lord for David. That actually didn't happen. David didn't do that. Doeg assumes that's what happened, but it didn't. And he gave him provisions. And he gave him the sword of Goliath the Philistine. And as you work your way down through the end of the chapter, you find Saul going back to Nob. And because of the false report, because of his assumption that the priest knew what was going on, because of his assumption that David had gone to seek after the face of the Lord, Saul says, kill everybody here. Destroy the entire village. Kill the priest. Kill that priest. Kill all the priests. Destroy their houses. Kill their families. Kill their livestock. Get rid of them. Wipe them off the face of the earth. Because these people are in league with David. They inquired of the Lord for him. They gave him sustenance and aid. And therefore they are my enemies just as David is my enemy. You fast forward down to the end of the chapter and it's just an absolute bloodbath. Verse 17, Saul's servants aren't willing to kill the priests of God, and so he turns to Doeg the spy, and he says, you turn around and attack those priests. Verse 18, and Doeg the Edomite turned around and attacked the priests, and he killed that day 85 men who wore the linen ephod, the very thing that David had rejected and ignored for the sake of grabbing his own salvation. These men wore that very thing. And he struck Nob, the city of the priests, with the edge of the sword, both men and women, children and infants, also oxen, donkeys, sheep. He struck the whole thing with the edge of his sword, going beyond the instructions that Saul had given to him. One of them, one great-grandson of the priest Eli escapes. And he goes and he tells David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David says, I knew on that day when Doeg was there that he would surely tell Saul, and now I have brought about the death of every person in your father's household. David begins to realize his perspective is right. He rests in the sovereignty of God. But he goes back and the full weight of what he has done by clinging to his own way, rather than by clinging to the sovereign promises of God, He lives with that for the rest of his life. And I am sure that in his heart, he wishes, he he wished that he could go back and undo that. That he could go back and trust the Lord from the get-go instead of having to go and learn that lesson in Gath. And you go back to that road as he comes out of Gath and you see David trudging through the dust. He'd really, really made a mess. People were dead. Life hadn't gone the way he thought it was going to. And now he's seen the consequences of not trusting the Lord. And yet, despite all of that, he's not blaming God. He's not questioning God's wisdom. He knows God's providence, and he's confident in it. 
His expectations are surely still unmet at this point in his life. He has no idea what God is going to do. And yet he knows that in the end, the Lord's ways are just and that he cares for the needs of his own. Verse 22, the final verse in Psalm 34, really captures the heart of David. He says, in the end, here is what I know. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and no one who takes refuge in him will be condemned. You know, the valleys by definition, they are dark places and they're hard. It's hard to see the high point in life when you're way down low. And left to ourselves, it's impossible to find joy and peace when you're in the middle of suffering hardship, pain, and loss. There are deep, deep ravines of trial and trouble in life. And it may be that here this morning, you're in the middle of one of those deep valleys. And David's encouragement to us here today is, instead of taking matters into your own hands and clinging to your own hopes, reorient your mind. Because the whole point of being in a valley is to enable you to be able to comprehend that you are not alone. There is one who walks with you. There is one who sees everything in your life. He doesn't just see the mountain peaks that we tend to see. Because he is sovereign, his throne is infinitely higher than even the high points of your life. And therefore his gaze penetrates down through the deepest, darkest shadows. And when everything seems lost, this one, this great God, he is still there with you. And it's your awareness of his presence that makes that valley meaningful. You see, low points are designed by their very nature to focus our eyes upon the one who actually lives in the heavens. And that's so important for us to remember. Because when we are stuck down in those valleys, we don't look back to the good times for our hope. We look behind those good times to the one who is the ultimate definition of all that is actually good. So may we reorient our gaze when we are discouraged and disappointed away from ourselves and back onto him where he intends for it to be. Let's close in a word of prayer this morning. Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word that has instructed our hearts here today. May we be those who fear you, who see your goodness and walk accordingly. When we find ourselves in the midst of great difficulty and when things have not lined up with what we thought we should have or the way things should go, May we instead cling to you and recognize that this is all still from your sovereign hand. And even if it leaves us with nothing, you are still good and great and kind. You save those who fear you and walk with you. And so may we be faithful to be those kinds of people today and to learn these lessons in our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' holy matchless name. Amen.